Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be finishing Luke chapter 5 and then going into the first 19 verses of Luke chapter 6 today. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've given you or that you pulled off the back table, that's on page 5, or, I'm sorry, 861 and 862. I want to begin by asking you to consider a question. Do you think you've ever forgotten the Lord? It seems almost like an impossibility for us to do that, right? How could we forget God? But perhaps you were caught by these words in the psalm that I read, Psalm 106, where the psalmist recounts how God saved them from the hand of the foe, how they believed his words, and they sang his praise, that's Psalm 106, 12. Then 106, 13, the very next verse says, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. What a chilling pair of phrases that is. They believed God, they praised him, and then they forgot what he'd done for them. I think that provides a helpful context for what we're going to look at here in Luke chapters 5 and 6. I think as we examine Luke's description of Jesus' confrontation with Pharisees here, we, we see what it looks like when God's people forget God. We pick up here in this section of Luke that is all about discipleship. So Luke chapter 5 verse 1 began a, a story of Peter confessing his sin to Christ and then being called by Christ to be a fisher of men. And we read in verse 11 how Peter, James, and John left everything and followed Jesus. And then this section of scripture that we're looking at, I think kind of concludes or wraps up with the, the calling of the disciples in, in Luke chapter 6, where all of the disciples are, are named, the 12, are call, and they're called apostles. And in between, we have the call of Levi, which we'll look at in a minute. So this is a, a big section that's all about discipleship, what it means to follow Christ. But it's not the kind of book that we would write about discipleship. So if we write about discipleship, it's usually more of a, a how-to practical manual. Do this, don't do that. This is what it means. But here in this passage, we have really what's a, a collection of, of stories, narratives about Jesus, kind of episodes. And it's not even teaching of Jesus. That will come next week. It's these events in his life of healing and of, of discussions and arguments and confrontations that he has. We might think of them like a collection of portraits each event shows us Jesus and his disciples and also the opponents of Jesus, as we'll see. Last week, we saw Jesus as the Holy Lord who has the authority to forgive sin and the one who can purify those who are defiled. These pictures show us Jesus as the one who creates a people for himself by calling sinners to repentance. And they show Jesus as a king like David, who's the authoritative interpreter of the law. We could look at each of these portraits by themselves. We could have a sermon on each paragraph or story. But I think they gain power as we, we put them together into more of a collage. We get a, a kind of beautiful picture by combining them that begins to show us 
I think, an early picture of Christ's new people, the church, his redeemed people. We see here Jesus, full of power and glory, standing at the center of his gathered people, his repentant people. He's called them to himself, and they've come in repentance to seek forgiveness, and he's forgiven them, and he's healed them and restored them by his power, and he's shown them the goodness of his ways, and he's commissioned his apostles to be his ambassadors for his kingdom on the earth. That's the picture we get when we put all of these stories together. So this morning we're going to try to continue building this collage and hopefully in the end we'll see this picture develop of Christ the King standing at the center of his gathered people. This morning as we walk through the passage we're going to look at it under three headings. First, we're going to see that Jesus rejoices with the repentant. Jesus rejoices with the repentant. Second, we'll see that Jesus rules in goodness. Jesus rules in goodness. And third, that Jesus redeems his people. Jesus redeems his people. So those three points again. Jesus rejoices with the repentant. Jesus rules with goodness. And Jesus redeems his people. So let's look at this first one. And as we do, we're, we're going to be looking at this story of a repentant sinner who's called by Jesus and then feasts with Jesus. Let's read verses 27 through 32. Listen to God's word. This is of chapter 5. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Again, last week we looked at how Peter began the, the kind of series of miracles by confessing himself a sinner, but he didn't receive a promise of forgiveness from Jesus. But then the last story, we had the paralyzed man who says nothing, and he's offered forgiveness. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And I believe we're supposed to read those two stories together. We're to see Jesus is revealed to us as the one who is authorized to forgive sins, and the kind of complementary picture to that is that a disciple is revealed to us as one who comes to Jesus and confesses their sin and receives forgiveness. Disciples are forgiven. I think we could even go further and kind of press the image of the paralyzed man. All disciples lie helpless before Jesus and yet are raised by his power. The followers of Jesus are those to whom Christ has said, rise and walk. Well, this week we're picking up chapter 5 immediately after that rise and walk miracle with this story of Levi. And this story continues to show us what it means to follow Jesus as Levi is called. And then what does he do? He rises and follows Jesus. 
The tax collector that's mentioned here named Levi is also called Matthew later on in, in chapter 6 when the disciples are named or the apostles are called. And this story of his calling couldn't be any shorter. Right? With Peter, we get a whole thing on a boat and a miracle. With Levi, Jesus says, follow me. And Levi leaves everything and follows him. That's the whole of it. But what happens next gets all of Luke's focus. Levi goes and makes this feast for Jesus and invites a large crowd, it says. He must have had a big house. The key detail about Levi is that he's a tax collector. Tax collectors were already mentioned once by Luke when he told us about John the Baptist's ministry. If you remember, three groups of people came to John and asked, basically, what do we, what do we have to do to repent? And so this is what John had to say to tax collectors in Luke chapter 3, 14. He says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. So these tax collectors would have been given authority by the Roman government or maybe the governor there in, in their area to collect a certain amount of taxes. But John tells them to collect no more, which seems to imply that they often collected more, right? That they were kind of extortionists. They used the power that they had to get more than they were authorized to do as a way to enrich themselves. So the, the people who around tax collectors, especially these Jewish tax collectors, would have seen them perhaps the way we would see a corrupt policeman, right? The object of, of scorn, something that's just clearly not right. But what's more, the tax collectors weren't just thieves, that they were they were also, as Jews, openly collaborating with the, the Roman occupying force. And so they would not only have been seen as, you know, immorally greedy and thieving, but traitors. They would have been caught making common cause with this group of people that were there to oppress Israel by, by occupying Palestine. And so it's common in the scripture when tax collectors are mentioned, they're mentioned with sinners. And that's what the Pharisees do in verse 30. There's no indication the Pharisees were wrong in doing so, that, that they were right in a sense. Tax collectors, and, tax collectors and sinners kind of naturally do go together in this context. It's also not surprising that Pharisees or people like Pharisees would not want to have anything to do with, with tax collectors. The Pharisees often are looked at negatively when we read the, the Gospels, and, and that's well-earned. But we need to remember that they were genuinely concerned about the spiritual state of Israel. They were misguided in that concern, but they, they sincerely wanted to see the people of God purified from their lawless ways. And so, because tax collectors were, were corrupted and impure, they were a prime example of the spiritual rot in Israel, and they were someone to stay away from because a faithful Israelite wouldn't want to be adjacent to or to share a table with someone who had so defiled themselves through their immorality, through partnering with Rome. So the, the Pharisees, in some ways, are really understandable here and not wanting to have anything to do with these tax collectors. To eat with the tax collectors seem to be joining with them or approving of their corruption. So it's not surprising that they grumbled at Jesus' disciples for, for joining in this feast at Levi's house. So that raises the question, well, why did Jesus go? If he's going to arouse these suspicions. It's tempting to portray Jesus here as a man who has no qualms about sin. As if Jesus is cool. 
Like he's just not the kind of guy to make big deals about things like sin because he just wants people to hear the gospel. Is that, is that what's going on here? Is Jesus downplaying sin by his attendance? Well, look at what Jesus says when the Pharisees grumble about him. And they, it's interesting, they grumble to his disciples. I think that's emphasizing this theme of discipleship, but it's clearly directed at him. And so he responds in verses 31 and 32. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice that Jesus agrees with the Pharisees in the sense that he has been with sinners. He's come for sinners. The Pharisees' assessment, again, was not off. They were right. But notice that Jesus didn't come to affirm people in their sin and say, it's okay that you're sinning. Don't worry about yourself. He doesn't come to approve of them in their extortion and their corruption. That's not why he came to eat and drink at Levi's house. He doesn't eat and drink at Levi's house because he has a light view of sin. He takes sin very seriously. Sin is a big deal to Jesus. But notice this. Repentance is also a big deal to Jesus. Repentance is worthy of feasting over. Jesus rejoices with the repentant. The repentance of a sinner is reason for rejoicing. And that's what this feast is all about. The feast of Levi, called by Jesus, right? And he, we hit this kind of mirror of called, I mean, not the word, but the, the idea. He, he calls out to him to follow him, and Levi does. And Levi, Levi's a sinner who's called by Jesus to repentance, and Levi does. That's the implication here. This is of a feast of the repentant. So let's look at it that way and then go back and think about the Pharisees' objection. We did, a, I think, a yeoman's work of trying to understand their objection on their own terms, but now let's, let's look at it with more scrutiny. The Pharisees believed that they were right to grumble because of the spiritual rot in Israel. But here Jesus is, in, in, well, Jesus is, is worthy of their grumbling because he's this popular preacher seeming to just make the problem worse by feasting with sinners. But the reality is the Pharisees were grumbling at the fact that sinners were repenting. Right? They, if, if, you know, maybe they genuinely missed this, the point of the story, but that's what's happening in fact. Right? Sinners are repenting, and they're grumbling about it. They're not rejoicing. They're not there at the party saying, wonderful, tax collectors are repenting. This is a new day in Israel. No, they're, they're outside the, the feast grumbling. And this is why we read Psalm 106. Remember, they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his promise. The ESV says murmured, but it's the same word. They grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. So the Pharisees think they represent righteous Israel, but in reality, they're repeating the same sin of their idolatrous ancestors. They're grumbling in the wilderness holding themselves off from the promise that God has made to them in Jesus Christ, the promise of forgiveness for those who repent. And this gets to the Pharisees' great failure. They only had eyes to see the sin of others and not their own. If they had a true sense of their own sinfulness, of their own guilt before God, they too could have repented and receive the forgiveness of Jesus. 
You know, Jesus doesn't say, I came to call sinners to repentance, except you Pharisees, right? They were welcome to come and receive if they would repent. They could have joined in the feast at Levi's house. They could have welcomed the good news that Jesus brought, that he came like a doctor to cure the sick. They could have responded to his call, his call to sinners to repent. Well, that's the Pharisees. What about you and me? Are we like Levi, rejoicing that Jesus has called us to repent and believe in him? We probably should admit that repenting or rejoicing in repentance is hard for us. Right? It requires us to, to be open about our sin and our weakness, our failures. In our pride, we despise that kind of vulnerability. We don't want others to know our sin. And in our pride, sometimes we're just blinded to our sin. We don't even see it. We think that we're righteous. But we need to see that Jesus did not come to pat the self-righteous on the head and say, good job, keeping your nose clean. He came to call sinners to repentance. We try to say this almost every week in the Lord's Supper, right? This meal is only for sinners. It's for repentant sinners who've come by faith to Jesus. Now, this is very good news, but it's also news that confronts us. Our Lord doesn't downplay our sin. He compares himself to a doctor who's come to bring a cure. Well, that must mean that sin is like a disease that's killing us. Like we're sick people. We desperately need a doctor. Jesus presents himself as that great physician who would heal us. So he doesn't say to us, your sin is no big deal, let's party. That's not Jesus' message. He says, repent of your sins and believe in me and receive forgiveness. It's when we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, it's then that we receive the joy of his fellowship. Jesus calls sinners to repentance and Jesus rejoices with the repentant. He rejoices in our repentance. That's the first thing we see in this text. Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees continues down through the end of chapter 5, but we're going to do something a little bit weird, and we're going to kind of put a pin there and skip down to chapter 6, verse 1, to see our next point. We'll come back to that conversation that ends chapter 5, but for now we're going to move to chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, where we find two questions about the Sabbath. The first question is one that Jesus asks, I mean, the Pharisees ask of Jesus, And then the second question is one that Jesus asks of the Pharisees. So these two Sabbath episodes show us that Jesus rules in goodness. Let's go ahead and read chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. On the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And he answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching a man who, a man 
and as he was teaching, a man was there whose hand, right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In Luke, we've already seen instances of Jesus teaching in synagogues on the Sabbath, but this is the first time where laws about the Sabbath come up. If you know your, Jew, your Old Testament scriptures, you know the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. It was a, a, week of, a day of rest during the week and a day of worship for Israel. And if you know the Ten Commandments, you remember that God commanded that this day was to be remembered and kept holy. They were to work for six days and then rest on the seventh day. It says, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work. And God provides there a rationale for the command. He says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I read that just to remind us that the Sabbath was intended as a blessing for Israel. Unlike their cruel taskmaster Pharaoh, who they had been serving in Egypt, now they were brought out to the wilderness to serve a new master. And this master allowed them this day off. But it wasn't just a day off for rest, it was a day off to fellowship with him, the God of the universe. They were to bring their sacrifices to the tabernacle and and rejoice in his presence. So it was supposed to be a a day of of holy remembrance that they belonged to the God who saved them out of Egypt. It was a good day. But by the time of Jesus, we see that zealous teachers like Pharisees had added many traditions and additional regulations to what God had commanded about the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, one of the funniest things about the Sabbath is they had these ideas you could join houses together by building a little fence between them. And as long as those houses were joined together, you could walk between the houses and not break the rules they had made about how far you could walk. And you can actually go online and look at cities today where, where Jewish congregations have put up wire around the cities that define this fence within which you're allowed to walk. And there's one in Houston. There's a, there's a website that maps all of them in the United States um, so that it's, it's, it's allowable for them to walk to synagogue and to go to each other's houses, I guess, within this boundary. So this, these kinds of Sabbath rules that are added to the scriptures are continuing even to this day. But the, the point here, here is that the Pharisees saw the way Israel refused to keep the Sabbath or failed to keep the Sabbath in the past. And so the Pharisees are kind of building up these extra rules to make sure we don't even get close to breaking the Sabbath, right? But Jesus did not keep their traditions. He allowed his disciples to pluck grain as they walked through a field. It's not at all clear that this violated any of the Mosaic law, but it violated the Pharisees' additions to the Mosaic law. And so they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. Now, in response, Jesus cites the example of David. David is running for his life from King Saul, and he goes to the tabernacle. He's hungry and needs food for himself and his men. 
And the only food that's there is this bread of the presence, or sometimes called showbread. It was bread that was kind of a, a fixture of the tabernacle. And when the bread was kind of exchanged for a fresh loaf, that bread was only supposed to be eaten by the priests. And so it really shouldn't have been allowed for David to eat this bread. But the priest takes the bread and gives it to David and his men. And, you know, David doesn't get struck down dead, which is really what should have happened, right? We see that happen in other cases where, where men touch the Ark of the Covenant to keep it from falling and they're struck down. Or, or Aaron's two corrupt sons who are struck down for offering strange fire. So it seems from the way the story is told that this was an approved kind of exception to the use of the showbread, that the Lord himself approved of David being allowed to eat it. And so Jesus cites this example to kind of illustrate a principle to his, his, his conversation partners, these Pharisees. And the principle here is that the law was intended to do good and not to do harm. It was meant to save life and not to destroy it. Right? That's the thing that Jesus will, will put his finger on in the, in the second episode. But he's kind of illustrating it with this example of David in the first episode. It was good for, for the priest to save the life of David and use the showbread for that purpose. So that's kind of the, the overarching principle Jesus starts with. But then he switches his tactic with this strange saying, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he's introducing another way to argue here about why what he's doing is okay. By saying this, he's making a more explicit comparison between David and himself. So if you look at the way Jesus is speaking, that comparison's kind of already there, right? David has his posse, he gets the bread. Jesus has his posse, they pluck the grain. Well, now he's making it more explicit because the Son of Man is a, a kingly figure from Daniel. He's a man who has a, a reign and rule that will never end. And so Jesus presents himself here as the similar kingly representative and he has authority over the Sabbath. Now this is especially kind of smacks in the face of the Pharisees because they think they have some kind of authority to interpret God's law. And Jesus is saying, I have authority. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who is the Son of Man. So he's kind of saying to them, you're talking to someone who has more expertise and authority about God's law than you dare to imagine. So that's the, the second kind of argument Jesus makes. And this leads us to the second Sabbath episode where this man with the withered hand shows up. And we see here the antagonism is growing, right? The Pharisees are now watching him so that they can accuse him. They're hoping to catch him that's doing something so obviously against God's law that, it, that they can catch him. So that kind of gives you the picture. They, they know they lost round one. Right? They didn't catch him on the grain thing. I think they're at least puzzled by the son of man thing. But now they think, well, maybe this is our, our chance. The, 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 the setting is here. There's a sick man here. We know what he likes to do there. Maybe he'll do something that clearly violates God's law. So this brings Jesus to ask his question. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? Well, again, the previous episode is already established that they all agree on that principle, that the law of God is meant to save life and not destroy it, that there's times when the, the spirit of the law in some ways trumps the letter. And so they've kind of already given away the store there in their argument. 
but then there's still hope. You know, what if Jesus does something demonstrative here to heal this man? Well, notice how Jesus heals him. He just goes, you know, stand up, come over here, looks around. There's no abracadabra. There's no touching. There's not even a words be healed, right? The only word is stretch out your hand. And he stretches it out and is healed. They can't catch him on anything, right? And so that leads to the final part of the story. They're enraged by all of this. They're enraged by the fact that they can't argue with him as an interpreter of the law. He's got him beat there. They're enraged by this claim to authority. He's the son of man who rules the Sabbath. And they're filled with fury because as desperately as they're trying to, they can't catch him clearly breaking the Sabbath. They can't discredit Jesus. I wonder if you can relate to them at all. Have you ever been frustrated in your hopes to catch somebody, some opponent, and have them be exposed? I mean, all of us Astros fans know what it feels like when the evil empire of the Yankees and the Dodgers, they cheat and they just seem to get away with it, right? No consequences. We lost draft picks, right? But there's something even more sinful and tragic going on. Jesus puts his finger on a major problem with the Pharisees. Their traditions have turned God's law into a weapon for harm. They have turned God's law into a weapon to beat down and oppress their own brother Israelites. So in their hands, the Sabbath has become something harmful and destructive. And they're blind to the good ways of God that Jesus reveals. They're so concerned about their rules that they cannot rejoice that a, that a man with a withered hand is healed. What we see here is Jesus being revealed to us as God's prophet, priest, and king. He's the one who's come to forgive and restore God's people when they repent. So King Jesus shows us how God's law has always been intended to conclude, to end up, or to point, with God's people living in blessed fellowship with God. Jesus shows us a picture of what life under God's law looks like. It looks like restoration. It looks like wholeness. Now, this does not mean that all Christians experience healing and wholeness in this life, like the man with the withered hand did, at least for a time. But his healings give us a preview of what the new heavens and new earth are like. Ultimately, we who know Christ, who have repented of our sins and trusted him, all of us will one day be healed. That's what we're looking forward to. And we get a little glimpse here as this man's withered hand is restored to him in the, in the synagogue. The good news of the gospel, though, is that right now, sinners like you and me can begin to enjoy life under the good rule of our king. And we can enjoy this life by repenting of our sins and trusting in his work. This brings us again to kind of confront the, the sad irony of the Pharisees. They're desperate to catch Jesus as a lawbreaker. But the truth is, every person except Jesus, including these Pharisees, we are all the lawbreakers, right? They're trying to catch him when they have sinned against God. This, that's the truth the scriptures reveal about all of us. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed to do good. We've all harmed others. We may have even used religious principles and rules to do that sometimes. 
apart from God's grace, our lives are just like the, the Pharisees. They're characterized by pride and unbelief and grumbling. But the good news is that now we can be forgiven by faith in what Jesus has done. We can be forgiven because King Jesus did perfectly keep God's law. He was righteous, but he received the punishment that a lawbreaker deserves. And by trusting that his death on the cross paid for our sins, God regards us as if we possess Jesus' righteousness. It's imputed to our account. Do you see the goodness of King Jesus' reign? He rules in goodness. He came to restore what our sin destroyed. And once we come to him by faith, then we're able to, with new hearts, joyfully obey him. William Cooper wrote in one of his hymns, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. All of that is what Jesus is offering to sinners. If we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, we receive forgiveness and new hearts. We're promised a life of joy in the presence of Christ and we get to live under his good rule. Jesus came to do good, to heal, to save. What about you? Are, are you living life of joy, forgiven by Christ and under his rule? Have you heard his pardoning voice? Or are you living like a Pharisee, perhaps not in your self-righteousness, but in feeling enslaved by the law? trying to do good and failing under your own power? Are you using the law that way? Just trying to look at it as a, as a self-help guide where you just try to harder and harder and harder to keep it? If you try to use the law that way, it only leads to destruction. But if, you, if the law shows you your sin and drives you to Christ, it's life-giving to you in that way. It leads you to life. Hear the call of Christ the King who came to call sinners to repentance. It's through repentance and faith in Christ that we walk into Christ's kingdom. We walk into this life of joy and peace. It's through repentance and faith in Christ that we experience Jesus as our good ruler. And as a church, it's our job and our privilege to put these realities on display for the world. When we worship Jesus and we live lives together, we're proclaiming the glorious truth that repentant sinners can be forgiven. And by striving together to live holy lives and to fight against sin, to, to, to be obedient by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're testifying to the goodness of God's law. So we're intended to be the people of Christ, to be the people of the one who rejoices in repentance and rules in goodness. Are we that kind of people? This brings us to our last point, that Jesus redeems his people. To see this point, I want to go back to the end of chapter 5, beginning of verse 33. Remember that the Pharisees have been grumbling about Jesus, eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus has just said that he came to call sinners to repentance. So now in verse 33, the Pharisees are speaking again. They're talking to Jesus. And they said to him, 
The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. So Jesus has two sayings here. The first is, is shorter. He says, Jesus' disciples don't fast because they're like guests at a wedding. A wedding is a time for feasting. In this, in this wedding analogy, Jesus would be the groom, right? They're with Jesus. It's a time for feasting. It's not a time for fasting. The implication here to the Pharisees is that these wise interpreters of the law have misjudged the times because they've misjudged Jesus. They're missing out on the joy of forgiveness because they've refused to repent and believe in Jesus. So that's the first thing Jesus wants them to see. They've misjudged the times. They don't understand who he is, who is in their presence. The second saying comes in the form of this short parable about the wine and wineskins or the new and old cloths. So we have this, these two images of new and old and the way that new and old in, in these two cases don't match together. They, they'll actually destroy each other. So with, the, with the emphasis or the, the uh, illustration of the wineskins, in this, in this time one of the ways that wine would have been stored would have been in animal skins that were, were treated in some ways so that they wouldn't make the wine taste like animals, I suppose. And the, the idea is that, as, as you know, with, with leather, the older it gets, the more brittle it gets. So if you put new wine that's still fermenting, it's going to expand. It's going to burst those old, brittle wineskins. So new wine needs a new wineskin. It needs one that's still kind of pliable and that will grow and expand as the wine ferments and expands. In the context of this section that's all about disciples, the best way to understand these new wineskins is that these new wineskins are the people who repent and trust in Jesus. They are like people like Peter and Levi and the other disciples who are named later in chapter 6. The new wine is this message Jesus is bringing, that, that, that people can relate to God and be forgiven by faith in him. And this new wine needs to be poured into new wineskins, a new people of God. The old wineskins would refer to the, the Pharisaic religion. By this, again, I don't just mean self-righteousness. I mean a kind of Judaism that rejects Jesus. That's what the Pharisees were trying to practice. They were trying to attempt a, a righteousness according to the law of Moses while rejecting the one who fulfilled the law of Moses. And the point here is that the Pharisees' way is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus. Jesus' way destroys that Christless way. The new wine of Jesus bursts those old wineskins. But what I want you especially to note is the last line of the parable. Jesus says, And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. 
Now, this confused me at first. It sounds at first as if Jesus is saying, well, the, the old is better than the new. But he doesn't, it's not making an objective claim. He's saying, he's saying something about the desires of the old wine drinkers. What they want. The Pharisees are condemned by the fact that they have no desire to taste and see the goodness of Jesus. They prefer to stand outside the feast drinking their old wine. They prefer to remain in the wilderness instead of entering the promised land. They're refusing the offer of forgiveness that Jesus extends to them, that Christ brings. They love their old ways too much, and so they have no desire for the new way of knowing God through Jesus Christ. And we, we shouldn't excuse them, right? Paul says that the law was Israel's guardian until Christ came. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. They should have seen that, that their, their Mosaic law was meant to point them to Christ, and they missed it. They loved those old ways, and so they had no desire for Christ's way. Now, I don't think any of us in this room really struggle with desiring the Mosaic law. But it is worth asking, are there things that, that have blunted our taste buds for Christ's way? Are there things that, that have led you not to desire the way of Christ? And I think this is something each of us has to answer on our own before God. There's something about your way of life, you know, your, your pattern of living, your the places you look for security and comfort and pleasure. Are there things about those, those ways of, of living that, that keep you from tasting and seeing the goodness of Jesus as he's offered to you in the gospel? Is, are there things that keep you from heeding his call to repent and be forgiven of your sins? Jesus warns here about that, those who have no desire for the new wine. Is that you? Is that me? Jesus is showing us that the old way is no way at all. And the only way is the way that he has come to bring. The only way that sinners can have fellowship with God is through Jesus. We can't find fellowship with God through the law of Moses. We can't find it through our own self-righteousness. The only way to have fellowship with God is by coming to faith in Jesus. And Jesus says that he's come to pour this new wine into new wineskins. He's establishing a people of God, ultimately one that will include both Jews and Gentiles, who are not defined by their relationship to Abraham, but they are defined by Jesus. The people of Christ, the people Christ has come to redeem, are, are defined by repentance of sin and faith in Christ. And that's why this, episode, or this series of episodes ends the way it does, I think, with the call of the disciples as apostles. We see here a picture of Christ's people built upon the foundation of Christ's apostles. Let's read the last part of our text, chapter 6, verses 12 through verse 19. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, 
and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with, all, with a great crowd of his disciples and a multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. It's easy when we come to a list of names in the Bible, any list, to kind of glaze over. But notice the care Luke takes to introduce this list. He tells us that Christ went up on a mountain and prayed, and he prayed to God all night. And it takes pains to say that he called them. I think we're meant to see this as a momentous occasion, this calling of the disciples as apostles. It's a turning point in the history of Christ's blood-bought people. Just as he called Levi to follow him, just as he called sinners to repentance, now we see him calling some of this number of disciples to serve him in this office as apostles. An apostle was like a legal representative, someone who had power of attorney from somewhere else, from someone, for someone else. And so these disciples were selected by King Jesus so that he can send them out as his ambassadors to proclaim the gospel. Upon these apostles will be built the church, we'll see. And then after the apostles are named, Jesus comes down from the mountain and we get a final scene. Right? Very little happens, we just get this description of large crowds of disciples, great multitudes gathered around Jesus. And verse 18 says, they came to hear and be healed. It would be not quite right to say that this is the church. It's clearly this mixed multitude that's following Jesus. But we can see the seed that will grow into the church. We see here, again, kind of a, an abstract picture of Christ's redeemed people. They are the people who have heard and been healed by Christ. That's who we are. We've responded to the, to the word, the message of forgiveness, We've repented, we've trusted, and we've been raised to new life by the power of Jesus Christ. This is an assembly of the repentant, those who have heard and been healed. This is what the Feast of Levi was, right? The Feast of the Called, the Feast of a repentant sinner saved by Jesus. And the church today continues to be this kind of gathering, we, we come here, in a sense, to this gathering to hear and be healed. I'm not laying on hands, right? But, but we, we realize that we are, we're sick with sin. We need the healing of our great physician. And we, we need this every day, to repent and receive forgiveness. We need encouragement every day to press on to the day then, that we will be healed. We are the people of Christ. We are the people of the one who rejoices in repentance and who rules in goodness. This is how Jesus creates and redeems and rules his people. And by listening to Jesus, by hearing the gospel, and responding by faith, we glorify his grace. This is how we glorify God. We hear the gospel and we believe it. We make the invisible, you know, just words, visible by our lives, 
by repenting of our sin and trusting in him. So when we show up here, we're, we're this little visible representation of God's powerful grace, of Christ's powerful grace. We've been saved by him. And as we lock arms to follow him together and obey him, submitting to our king, we also display his glory. We're a little, a little outpost, a little ambassadorship, right, of Jesus. We're an embassy of the kingdom here today as we repent together and follow Jesus together. That's why we exist as a church. So if we're inclined to, to evaluate ourselves as a church, you know, we're going to put ourselves on the wall and measure us, you know, we, we shouldn't measure ourselves by the kind of building we have or the kind of chairs we're sitting in. We measure ourselves by, by these yardsticks. Are we glorifying the grace of Christ? You know, when we talk together, is it clear that we speak as, as one sinner to another, encouraging each other to find hope in Christ? When you examine your prayer life, are you praying for each other? Are you repenting of your own sins and, and finding joy in Christ as you pray? And are you praying that your brothers and sisters, the, the people in this directory, you know, that you look at the pictures, do you pray that they'll follow Jesus? that they'll trust in him and glorify his grace. Is that clear in the way that you pray and talk to each other? Is, is our obedience a testimony to our, our trust that God's way is good? Are we working together to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Do our relationships display that kind of desire to honor King Jesus? Are we helping one another grow in Christ? These are kind of the, the basic ABCs of church life. Are we doing this? How do we measure up? If an outsider were to look at us, would they see the glory of Christ's grace? Would they see a people who honor their king? Or would they see us living as if we don't really need the gospel? We don't really need help to follow Jesus. Would they see selfishness and superficiality and pride? Truth is, they'll probably see a mix. By God's grace, I see our church growing in our displaying of the gospel in these ways. I see, I see us growing and desiring to be vulnerable and repent of sin and encourage each other with the gospel. And yet, I know that we still have much room to grow. So when we, we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, we can start by fixing our eyes on Jesus and what he does. That's why studying the Gospels are so helpful. Luke shows us that Jesus rejoices in repentance. He shows us Jesus rules in goodness and that he's redeeming a people for himself. The Pharisees had no desire for him. They clung to their old self-righteousness. They rejected Jesus. And what about you and me? Would you stay out in the wilderness or would you repent and enter the feast? Let's pray. Father, once again, we think of that, the hymn that Dad quoted earlier. Why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice? We're overcome by 
thinking of your goodness to us in Jesus, that he calls sinners to repent. We thank you that you don't require us to fix ourselves, that all the fitness you require is to feel, your, feel our need of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners to repentance. And so we pray, Father, that we will come and receive mercy. We pray that we will be, as a church, a visible display of the glory of our gracious King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.